Friends, please take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, look at the seat or pew in front of you. You should see one there that we've placed for you to use today and to take with you as our gift to you. You'll find what we're going to look at on page 216 of those little Bibles. And you're really going to want to have it open in front of you because we're covering a lot of ground. And it'll help you to keep up and track with what we're, what we're looking at if you've got it open in front of you as I direct your attention bit by bit to it along the way. I'm curious out there, quick show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the halo effect? The halo effect. Not nearly as many people as I thought. Uh, The halo effect is a psychological theory about how we misperceive things often. Here's one definition. The halo effect is a type of cognitive bias. This one's like really precise and scientific definition, a kind of cognitive bias in which our overall impression of a person influences how we feel and think about their character. In other words, the first impression you get based on the first thing that you see will then from that point forward color things you see or expect about them in other areas of their life. Here's another definition. A common halo effect example is attractiveness and the tendency to assign positive qualities to an attractive person. For example, you might see an attractive person and assume they are generous and smart or trustworthy. The halo effect is the reason you don't see a lot of bald men modeling running shoes. I mean, in theory, there should be no connection whatsoever between how fast or how far you can run and whether you've got a nice thick head of hair. I mean, I get why you wouldn't have a bald man advertising great clips. But running shoes? The the reason you never see it, though, is that people have good impressions of nice, thick heads of hair. A guy with a head of hair like that has got to be fast, right? What kind of shoes is he wearing? I'll have a pair of those. Give me what he's having. Bald guys, not so much. One positive trait with good connotations can bleed over into our perceptions of other traits. This is a real thing. I've seen lots of studies showing that an attractive waitress, for example, averages $1,200 per year more in tips than an unattractive waitress, whatever that might mean. (laughs) Studies showing that the quality of dress that you arrive to your job interview in matters more than your qualifications listed on your resume for whether or not you get that job. We are relentlessly biased towards what we can see, towards what seems right in our eyes, you might say. And knowing that's how we are, that that's just a reality, it's how humans work, there are two basic ways you could respond to this pattern. One is you could lean into it and work it to your advantage. As one business insider guru put it, Like any other skill set that you don't have, if you're bad looking, avoid the occupations where it matters. (laughs) That's honest, isn't it? The other option would be to be suspicious of what you see, of what you perceive, to, to know that appearances can obviously be deceiving. To know that you can't always trust what you see. And deeper than that, you should not always trust what you're looking for in the first place. This is a lesson that Israel has to learn the hard way. And a lesson we see them learning through the story of Israel's first king. 
Today, we're going to look at Saul's rise to power, the first king anointed in Israel. We're going to cover chapter 8 all the way through chapter 11. And I want to begin now by reading the first few verses of chapter 8. And I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I do that. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through this incredible story in four simple steps, beginning with step number one, Israel's demand. Step one, Israel's demand. Where we pick up our story this morning, many years have passed since the miraculous victory of chapter seven, where Samuel had prayed after the people repented and the Lord thundered and his mere thunder scattered the army of the Philistines in all directions, giving Israel a victory that they didn't need to raise a sword to accomplish. Many years have passed. Samuel's old now. He's still beloved and trusted. But his sons, though, his sons look eerily familiar. His sons don't follow his ways. His sons aren't listening to God as he has. His sons, just like Eli's sons, they're looking for bribes. They're serving themselves. They're fattening themselves off of the, uh, God's people. So it's no wonder that the elders of Israel come to Samuel and have that awkward conversation about what comes next after him. You know, Samuel, you're not getting any younger. You are no spring chicken. What's the plan? In other words, your plan isn't going to work for us. Your sons clearly don't walk in your ways. We don't want to trust them with our future. Here's our plan. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Verse 5. Israel demands a king. Were they wrong? Was it wrong for them to ask this of Samuel and of God? Well, no and yes. No, in a way, it wasn't wrong for them to ask for a king. Uh, they weren't wrong to, to believe that a king would be good for them. In theory, this was fine. After all, the, the judges, which we looked at as the backdrop for this story, 
That whole period and all of its mess was summed up over and over again by the fact that there was no king in Israel. Without a king, without a just and godly authority, people do whatever they want, and that's bad for everybody. We do need a king. That's what Judges was all about. And, and actually, it goes back further than that. In, in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 17, God himself says, when the people get into the land, they're going to want a king. Here's the kind of king you need. Here, he'll be, here's a job description for him. So the idea of having a king wasn't in itself all bad. But in practice, yeah, absolutely, Israel was wrong to ask for a king in the way that they asked for it, for the purpose they asked for it, and what sort of king they were really looking for to begin with. All of that makes this demand a personal rejection of God's leadership over them. That's why verse 6 says Samuel was displeased when he heard it. Wasn't surprised they would want one. He, he's displeased at how they're coming to him and what they're asking for. That's why in verse 7, the Lord makes it clear, this people have rejected me from being king over them. And, and, and what's wrong with it? What's wrong with the request is the, in, in the way that they bring it really boils down to two things that are baked into what they're asking for. They're hinted at in chapter 8, verse 5, but are really clear in chapter 8, verse 20. Look at verse 20. They're demanding a king. Why? That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Why are they asking for a king? They want to be like everybody else and they want somebody to fight for them. This is meant to shock us. Fight your battles? You want a king to go out in front of you and fight your battles? As if so far you haven't had anyone to go out and fight your battles? One chapter earlier, they didn't lift a finger to scatter the Philistines like a nest of roaches when the light flips on. God did that all on his own simply because they asked him to. Now they want a king to go fight for them? That's personal. And like other nations, Israel, you, you want to be like other nations? Surely this is the deepest blow of all. They want a king because everybody else has one. They want a king because this is the security system the cool kids have put in. One you can look at with your own eyes. But, 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 but to, to ask to become like all other nations, they're basically asking to stop being Israel. They don't want to be who they are anymore. They don't want to be his people and have him for their God. What made them Israel was the sheer fact that they weren't like other nations. God loved them in a unique way. God provided for them in a unique way. God gave them promises for them. And all of it meant to make them wonderfully unique as this huge advertisement for anyone from anywhere to come here and be part of this people if you want this God for your God. Look at us. You'll see what that's like. It's wonderful not to belong to the kingdoms of this world. But now, now they'd rather not belong among his people. Now the grass looks greener to them on the not God's people side of the fence. 
friends, as Christians, you realize our identity is to us what Israel's was to them, a set apartness that's part of experiencing God's love and knowing when you have him for your father, him for your shepherd, him for your king, it means a different way of living and that's a really good thing. How does your separateness feel to you today? Do you see it as your birthright or like Israel, a burden to carry? Step number one is Israel's demand and step number two is Samuel's warning. The Lord takes their point. He sees what's in their heart more clearly than Israel sees themselves and yet still he tells Samuel, give them what they're asking for. Verse nine, set a king over them, but first warn them. Did you see that in verse nine? Read with me in verses 10 to 18, Samuel's warning. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you in that day. You guys know the kid's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? That's a good one, isn't it? Kids, that's a great book, isn't it? If you give a mouse a cookie, you know what's going to happen next. He's going to need a cup of milk to go with it. If you give a mouse a cup of milk to drink, you know what he's going to ask for next? A straw to drink from. And once he's been drinking his milk, you know what he's going to need next? A mirror to see if he's got a milk mustache. And once he's got a mirror and he sees that mustache, he's going to, need, he's going to notice that he needs a little trim around the ears. He's going to ask you for some clippers to do the job. If he's clipping around his ears, he's going to get tired. He's going to need a nap. He's going to ask you to read him a story before he goes down. While you're reading him a story, he's going to remember that, you, that, he, that he's thirsty. So he's going to want a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, you know what he's going to need? He's going to want a cookie to go with it, right? This, this passage reads just like that to me. What, what I love about that book is that its profound psychological insight rings so true. Want leads to want, leads to want, leads to want, leads to want, 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 want. No one's ever satisfied. And the more you have, the more you feel like you need to have. But what if instead of giving a mouse a cookie, you're giving a man a throne? What if instead of just activating one desire after another desire, you're giving him the power to claim what he wants over and over and over? What then? Then you're going to need a new verb. Want isn't going to do it anymore. Not he's going to want, he's going to want, he's going to want, but he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. Six times in nine verses, Samuel talks about what their king will take from them. 
If you give a man a throne, he'll take your sons and make them his soldiers. Verse 11. Because if you give a man a throne, he's got to have an army to expand and protect it. Give a man a throne, he'll take your daughters and make them his servants. Because, you know, he's going to want his palace to smell nice. And he's going to want it to look nice. And he's going to want to have it nice, full of nice foods that he can share with his guests. Give a man a throne and he's going to take your best fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and a tenth of your grain. He's going to give it to his servants because he's got to keep his staff happy. He can't have them restless. And if they represent him, they need a taste of what he gets. You give a man a throne and he'll take your servants and your young men and your donkeys, verse 16, and he'll put them to his work instead of yours. And finally, verse 17, you give a man a throne, that man will turn you into his slaves. This is loaded language, a loaded place to land. Because he's speaking to Israel here, to people with a living memory of the Exodus in their background. You want to end up like other nations? You will end up back in Egypt, right where you were before God called you out and set you apart as his special people. Now, Samuel is not laying out for us here the best or the worst type of government in human society. This is not an argument against monarchy in general. I think the warning here is really more about where you look for security, for protection, for provision of the things you need for your life to be stable and meaningful and significant. The Bible talks a lot about idolatry. And when the Bible talks about idolatry, it's bigger than just like the practice of idolatry with statues and temples and rituals that, that, that were common in Israel's day. For, for, for the Bible, idolatry is really anything and anywhere you look or rely on something for acceptance and affirmation and belonging and an assurance that you're valuable, that you're safe, that you're secure, that you have anything you look to for confidence that your life counts. You can make idols basically out of anything that matters a lot to you. So long as it can be seen, hopefully envied, so long as, so long as it promises some sort of security for what matters most. But here's the thing. Here's where Samuel's morning hits us. Whatever you put on the throne of your life, wherever you look to for protection, Whatever you serve in return for that protection. Whatever you put on the throne of your life is only ever going to take from you. Take from you. Take from you. It will only go as far as you can carry it. It will only stand up as long as you can keep it propped up. And it won't let you rest. And it won't ever give you anything you don't already have. Any idol on the throne of your life will take and take and take and take until you've got nothing left to give. The true God is not like that. I think you should consider Samuel's warning in these verses as a kind of photo negative of Psalm 23. This beautiful description of what it is to have God for your God doesn't get any better than Psalm 23. Think about it. Let's lay them side by side. Psalm 23 promises that with the Lord as my shepherd, I shall not want. This king would conscript me into his work, but the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. This king would send me out to fight his battles for him. The Lord leads me beside still waters. This king would steal my food 
the Lord spreads a table before me. This king would take and take and take and take, but the Lord restores my soul. The Lord follows after me, not with his hand out for more, but with goodness and mercy over and over and over again till I dwell in the house of the Lord forever where he provides and I consume as the one who knows what it is to have him as my God. If you become a Christian, it will cost you in a way. It means a transfer from one kingdom to another. It means the rule of a new king in place of whatever else you once served. But Jesus is not a king like other nations have. His kingdom is not of this world. And so really, it's all in what we read earlier from John chapter 10. When you submit to Jesus and pledge your allegiance to him, you are coming to a good shepherd. A shepherd who knows and loves his sheep. One who didn't come to take what you have, but to give up his life to provide what you need most. When you hear his voice telling you this, not that, you hear the voice of the one who did not come to steal, not to rob you of a good life, but to give life and to give it abundantly. That's who he is. That's what it is to serve him. We've seen Israel's demand and now Samuel's warning. And now the stage is set for the central drama of our passage this morning, and that is Saul's anointing. Step three, Saul's anointing. Samuel's delivered this clear warning, the one God told him to give. Now the people stop up their ears. Verse 19, no, la, 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 we can't hear you. No, there shall be a king over us. And chapters 9 and 10 introduce us to that king and tell the story of how he becomes king in the first place. Let me just tell you now, it is not the story you would expect. But it's a story beautifully told to show us three things about Saul's anointing as king. We're not going to read both of these chapters. We don't have the time for that. But I'm going to point you, dip into it to point you to what's going on in this story that shows us three things about Saul's rise. Saul rises, first of all, despite himself. That's the first thing this story shows us. Now, I don't know what you'd expect about how a king comes to power. I've read enough history and watched enough movies to know what I'd expect. I expect maybe a power vacuum, you know, where there's a struggle between different contenders and the one who's got the best army or the strongest will to power comes out on top like William the Conqueror in 12th century England. Or maybe some sort of clever, treacherous assassination plot behind the scenes where one guy takes out another one and, and has the, the power in place to, to make sure he's chosen as the successor. Or, or, or maybe a guy who's got power in one place, but he just expands his, tower, his power into some other place, like, like Genghis Khan spreading all over Central Asia. Or maybe just a charismatic leader that people can't help but follow. Just through the force of his attraction, he rises to power. And none of these things are how Saul comes to his throne. His origin story is not with battlefield brilliance, but with a failed search for his father's lost donkeys. <laughs> failed search for donkeys that don't even belong to him. I'm not kidding you. That's the story. I mean, the donkeys were valuable, uh, to be sure. That was a, a, a good asset to have if you were in farming. They're not unimportant. But certainly donkeys are unimpressive compared to battles. And 
Come on, they're, they're donkeys. <laughs> donkeys are just inherently funny, aren't they? They look funny, they sound funny, they, they act funny. We're not meant to take them that seriously. And when we see Saul in action, he's not scheming for how to get into power for himself. He's not working any kind of angles out there behind the scenes. There's nothing further from his mind than the throne of Israel. And based on how the search for his father's donkeys goes in chapter 9, <laughs> there's not much further from his skill set than ruling over a people. In verses 3 and 4, he goes out in search of these donkeys obediently because his father asked him to. But three times in one verse we're told they didn't find them, they were not there, they did not find them. Saul is no Sherlock Holmes. This is not a guy with great instincts. In verses 5 to 10, we see Saul reach the end of himself. I just can't search anymore. Well, I don't want my dad being worried about me if I'm not home for dinner. Maybe we should turn back. It's his servant who has to prod him along. Well, let's not give up yet. Let's not give up yet. Hey, maybe we should go and, and talk to Samuel, the seer. He might know where our donkeys are. It's the servant who's got the idea. It's the servant with the will to follow through. The servant is leading the leader. Saul thinks, well, maybe there's something to this plan, but we don't have anything to pay Samuel with. Verse 7. And it's the servant who says, you know what, I got it covered. I got some change in my pocket. We'll give him this silver. It'll be fine. So finally Saul says, all right, we'll do it. We'll do it your way. They only find their way to Samuel because in verses 11 to 13, this guy who was on the way to being anointed king needs help from two unnamed women drawing water from a well to find the guy who's going to anoint him. This is no charismatic, clever leader of men. This guy has no unbreakable will and uncanny insight. There's no initiative here, no follow-through to get things done. He's just focused on finding those donkeys, and he's not even doing great at that. Saul rises despite himself. That's what we're supposed to see. Then we're supposed to see that Saul rises because God puts him there. Saul rises because God puts him there. Just before Saul reaches Samuel, the action flashes back and we get divine insight into why the story's playing out this way. With such, a, with such an obvious, repeated emphasis on Saul not being the one in the driver's seat. God is the one putting him on the throne. Look at verse 15 with me in chapter 9. The day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And then verse 17, when Saul shows up, the Lord says to Samuel, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. From this point forward, Samuel is leading Saul like his servant once did, step by step, little by little showing him that he will be made king even though he wasn't looking for it. In verses 22 to 24, Samuel gives him the seat of honor at a banquet as if an inauguration ball. Saul's just wondering what's going on. How did I end up at the head of the table? Why am I getting the leg to eat? The next day, Samuel guides him to the outskirts of the city. Chapter 10, verse 1, anoints his head with oil as a king and tells him, this is the Lord who wants you anointed king. Samuel promises him signs that will confirm all this in the days to come. All of them come true, according to verse 9 of chapter 10. And then in a public gathering of all the people at Mizpah, verse 17 of chapter 10, Samuel confirms what he'd already done in private. They cast lots. First, 
The tribe of Benjamin is chosen. That's Saul's tribe. Then the clan of the Matrites is chosen. That's Saul's clan. Then Saul himself is chosen, the son of Kish. Every detail, at every step, a confirmation that God is driving this. God is in control. And in case that game of dice at the end seems to, seems to, to put a little bit of random chance into the middle of it, just remember what Psalm 16:33 says. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God anoints Saul. He rises because God puts him there, which leads us to the third thing this story is meant to teach us about Saul's anointing. God puts him there because Israel asked for it. Not because he's the king they needed, but because he's exactly the kind of king they wanted. Back at the beginning of chapter 9, where this story takes off, the first two verses are laced with irony. Look there with me. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Classic halo effect. This guy's dad's got money. Good stock. And he's handsome. I mean, like, like so handsome. On top of all that, he's tall. I mean, look how tall he is, a head taller than anyone else around. Everyone in Israel is looking up to Saul. Imagine the envy of those other nations when they get a look at him. And come on, how could a guy with money, a guy who looks like that, a guy so tall, how could a guy this Instagrammable not have everything it takes to be a great king? He'd have to be a leader of men, right? Fast forward to the final scene of chapter 10. After the lots have been cast, Saul's been chosen. Look with me at verse 21. When they sought him, the one whom the lots had chosen, he could not be found. Why? Where did he go? So they inquire of the Lord, and the Lord has to tell them, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. It really says that, and it is what it means. They ran and took him from there, and then we're told, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Think about this for just a second. This man's been chosen by God. He's been anointed by God's prophet. He's been given a whole bunch of signs that this was God's plan, and they all came true. And at the moment of truth, when the lots are cast, he shrinks back from the task and hides himself among the baggage, like a kid playing hide-and-go-seek in mommy's closet. But Israel doesn't seem to notice that they have to drag him out from the baggage to come and do what they need him to do. They're too blinded by the halo effect. Once they get him up on his feet, all they see is how tall he is. Look at this guy. He's amazing. They're blinded by what they can see. They only notice the outward appearance. They don't see what's in his heart. 
At the very beginning of this section, after Samuel's warning, when the people insisted on a king, do you remember what the Lord had said to Samuel? Obey their voice. Make them a king. This is not Israel wearing God down or coming around to see that, uh, that God coming around to see that they, they'd been right all along. When God gives them this man to rule over them, he is giving them what they've asked for. He is giving them, in other words, what they deserve. This is justice. They did not obey the Lord, and now they'll face the consequences of the Lord obeying them. So why tell this coronation story like this, guys? Why tell it to bring these things to the surface? Because this author and the God who inspired him wants to warn us about us, to protect us from ourselves. I see at least two warnings here. When you trade faith for sight, you always lose. That's warning one. It's all there in the conclusion to this sequence. And in Samuel's words, before he casts lots, he says, before the lots are cast, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. I have delivered you from those who were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses and you have said, set a king over us. It's like Samuel is saying, look at the trade you're making. One of these is not like the other. You've got the Lord over here. He brought you up out of Egypt. He delivered you from all your enemies up to now. He saved you from calamities and distresses. And behind the scenes, this Lord right here, he's the one who's pulling all the strings. Everything falls into place according to his good and wise and perfect will. And behind all that, he loves you. Here's the Lord and all that he offers. Remember? And over here with donkeys on his brain, hiding among the suitcases, you got Saul. His resume is, he's really, really tall. <laughs> Who do you choose? And for Israel, they're thinking, our enemies are big, and he's the biggest guy we've ever seen. A bird in hand will beat two in the bush. Give us the king. Give us the tall man. I wonder, friends, what are you worried about this morning? Where do you feel right now your vulnerability in this world? Be careful where you look for security. And do not make this trade. Do not give up a God like this for whatever your version may be of a man like Saul. Because when you trade faith for sight, you trade infinite knowledge steadfast love and an unmatchable power for what can only ever fit inside your viewfinder, what can only ever share your blinders. Don't make that trade. When you trade faith for sight, you lose every time. The other warning I see here is this, be careful what you wish for because in God's just judgment, he may choose to give it to you. Getting to do or to have what we want is how we tend to define freedom these days. That's how God defines judgment. The Bible teaches what we want is often dangerous to ourselves and to others. Sometimes God giving you what you want can be his judgment. Sometimes God not giving you what you want can be his mercy. All of which is to say, be aware of what's in your heart. We need to have a healthy suspicion 
of whatever desires might be in us. And when there's a gap between what we want for our lives and what God has given us in our lives, we have a choice to make. We can be suspicious of our desires. Maybe something was wrong with what we wanted. Or we can be suspicious of God's goodness. Maybe something's wrong with him. Choose suspicion of yourself. God has proven himself over and over. Which leads me to the last step in this story in the place that we close this morning. From Saul's anointing to God's mercy. There's no question that the dominant theme throughout this story is Israel rejecting God as their God. And then God deciding to punish them by giving them exactly what they've asked for. But right along with this theme, there is a nagging theme that runs through the story. God will not, God cannot reject his people, even when his people reject him. And sometimes in God's mercy, he even uses their rejection of him, in this case, a king they prefer to him, to save them from enemies they didn't trust him to handle in the first place. The theme comes up first in chapter 9. Back when God was telling Samuel to expect Saul the following day. Verse, nine, or verse 16 of chapter 9, he says, You shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hands of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. You get that? Israel's just rejected God. He's the one who put it that way. How is he still owning them as his own when they've so clearly rejected him? How is he now talking like this king that isn't good news for them, that's clearly God's judgment on them, is also going to be the one to save them? We're meant to be asking that. How does this all get worked out? How does this tension get resolved? In chapter 10, he gives them the king they've asked for, clearly a form of punishment for their sin. This guy is not qualified for the job. They're going to learn that soon enough. But then in chapter 11, he uses this very king to save them from the people who were oppressing them because he couldn't handle it when they groaned and he heard their cry. Look with me at chapter 11. The Ammonites have besieged a city in Israel. They've given terrible terms to those inhabiting the city. They've said, here's the treaty we'll make with you. We'll gouge out your right eyes and bring disgrace on all Israel. You want peace? Open up that right eye. That would have left them blinded in the eye they needed for combat. The left eye would have been shielded by a shield in ancient combat. In other words, not only are you going to be disgraced with just the one eye, you won't be able to defend yourselves. You'll be our slaves forever. The people in that city, they have nowhere to turn. They can't get out from under this on their own. They send out messengers hoping somebody will come and help them. And when the message reaches Saul's town, the people who receive it, all they can do is weep aloud, verse 4. It's at just this point that Saul walks in from work in the fields. He sees everybody crying. He asks, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? They tell him the news. Now, what would you expect from a guy like this after all we've seen so far? when he knows that there are lives on the line and he's being looked to for help. I expect him to look around. Where's the closest pile of suitcases? I'm going for it. But look what actually happens. Verse 6. 
the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Okay, something new is going on here, and God is the one behind it. One friend compared this anointing to the star that you get in Mario, you know, which, which it comes on you for a time, and it makes you faster and invincible, and everything around you is just bouncing off until it wears off. It's not the indwelling of the Spirit that will come to Christians later. It's a temporary gift of power for God's purposes in saving God's people. What changes this story is God working through Saul to set them free. Now, think about that. God judged them by giving them a king. Then God uses that king, this symbol of their rejection of him, to save them from themselves. God uses the the instrument of his judgment as an instrument of mercy. That's how God works. This is what the Bible means. This is what it's talking about when it refers to his steadfast love. His love just won't quit. It's relentless. And there is nothing he won't do and nothing he can't use to save his people when they call on him. This is not the last time that God will use his judgment to show his mercy. When his son Jesus came into the world, he came with no halo effect hovering over his head. He wasn't born to a man of wealth, but into a carpenter's family. He was laid down in a manger. You remember that? And he was never much to look at. The prophet Isaiah said, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was not even on the top 10 of most handsome men in Israel. He was despised, in fact. He was rejected by men, just like God, his father. And he was as one from whom men hide their faces. But this rejection of God's son was all part of God's plan to save God's people. It is God's people who in the moment of decision cry out, crucify him. We'll take the Romans, they're taller. It was God's people who joined in the Romans' decision to run this man right out of the world. Never knowing what God was doing through their rejection of him or why he was doing it. It's all in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. On the cross, Jesus was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was not wounded for his own sins. It was our transgressions that he bore. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes, we are healed because all we like sheep have gone astray. That's our contribution here. We've all turned everyone to his own way. That's what we bring to this scenario. That's our part in this relationship. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what Jesus has done? In the cross, when you see it, see a symbol of our rejection of God. We don't want you. Get out of our world. We didn't ask you here. We don't want what you're selling. And then see God taking our symbol of our rejection and turning it into his radical, merciful acceptance of us. It screams out, I know you don't want me. I know you want your space. But I want you. I'll take the judgment your sin deserves. I'll bear the pain of the separation you asked for. And through your rejection of me, I will embrace you. That's the story. And that's the story of 1 Samuel 8 to 11 too. God just keeps on being God. He just keeps on loving his people. And he even turns our rejection to our acceptance. What a God to worship and serve. Who would you rather give your life to? 
Let's pray. Father, would you help us to rest in the beauty of having you for our God? And would you protect us from our temptation to elevate things that look better on the surface? Give us, through your word and through your people and your spirit working in both, a resilient faith that holds on to what you've promised while we wait to see it all come true. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.